to infinity and beyond! You actually think you're the Buzz Lightyear? You are a toy! You are a child's plaything! You're mocking me, aren't you? Whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a, a space ranger. Over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest, and it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. And to him, you're his buddy, his best friend. And when Andy plays with you, it's like, even though you're not moving, you feel like you're alive, because that's how he sees you. Life's only worth living if you're being loved by a kid. But what happens when the kids grow up? Welcome to Now Playing's Toy Story Retrospective Series. You got a play date with destiny. Hosted by Arnie. He'll never give up on you. Ever. He'll be there for you, no matter what. Stuart. I've been here years. They'll never break me. And Jacob. You're my favorite deputy. A new podcast is posted every Tuesday, so come back each week for another new show. Then we'd better make sure we're there waiting for them. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. The word I'm searching for, I can't say, because there's preschool toys present. We do a lot of improv here. Just stay loose, have fun, you'll be fine. Today we're discussing... Toy Story 2, starring Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, directed by John Lasseter. This is your toy collecting podcast host, Arnie and Stuart. Sweet mother of Abraham Lincoln, it's the chicken man, Jacob. <laughs> so welcome back, Toy Story 2. Honestly, a movie I never asked for and never saw. I couldn't believe that they were going into sequel territory so soon. It felt like they were disnifying everything already, just going back to the well. So this is your first time seeing it? I saw a part of it in 2003. I went to the Game Developers Conference and we were all camped out for free mice. I know that sounds silly as hell, <laughs> but there was a gamer-specific mouse and there were like 50 of us lined up most of the night and somebody pulled out a portable DVD player because those were a thing and put Toy Story 2 on and I was like hey I'm bored as hell can I watch that over your shoulder on this four inch screen and I watched like a half an hour of it remembered nothing yeah that's not the best circumstances to watch anything <laughs> I take it to mean that you had fallen out of favor with Tom Hanks if that was the big reason that got you there in 1995 Four years later, he was still a star. He had Private Ryan. He had another Meg Ryan, You've Got Mail. You've Got Mail is an underrated gem that perhaps I should have put in the book. That is a really good film, entirely dated title, but it actually foretold how I think dating now goes for millennials. It's a step away from Tinder the movie. I had not fallen out of favor with Tom Hanks. I was still watching all of this stuff. I mean, I saw Saving Private Ryan the year before for Tom Hanks. I saw Green Mile that year for Tom Hanks. It wasn't Tom Hanks keeping me away. It was 
cartoons. I think there's a certain point, like when you're in your 20s, just like, ah, cartoon. Nah, I can't do that. I, I'm done with college or whatever. I'm, I'm in my 20s. I'm moving on with life. I don't want to see a cartoon. Yeah, it came out in 1999. My favorite cartoon had Jar Jar in it. <laughs> yeah. And I get that, Arnie, because I said that first Toy Story was not on my radar when it came out. Bugs Life, I only saw because my mom said, hey, go babysit your brothers. Go take them to this movie. I'm like, sure, free movie. I'll take them. Toy Story 2 came out around Thanksgiving. We always go to a movie on Thanksgiving, our family. And again, there's a big range from me as the oldest to the youngest, 13 years younger than me. So big range. You know, I'm like, let's go see Being John Malkovich. What a great Thanksgiving movie that's going to be. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're going to go see Toy Story 2. And I threw, I'm like, I am not going to see this children's cartoon. And my dad's like, no, no, it's supposed to be better than the first. I'm like, I've never seen the first. He's like, well, it's good. No, no, you're going to enjoy it. And so I begrudgingly went to the theaters to see Toy Story 2. And I should probably say I wasn't collecting toys anymore. It's 99, Phantom Menace. That's a huge year for toy collecting. It was until like July when the shelves got backed up and Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises were closing because they'd spent so much on Phantom Menace promotions that money they didn't make back. Too many stinky peats on the shelf that didn't sell. <laughs> I stopped collecting toys for about a year and a half. I don't know if I knew that, really. Yeah, Phantom Menace burned me that bad, and I even was talking to people about selling my collection. They were offering me pennies on the dollar, so I didn't do it, thank God. But I was really burned on toys in general at that time. No, interesting. It should just be said that this movie wasn't intended to be the Thanksgiving Disney release that it was. It did grow on to be $245 million at the U.S. box office. That's even $50 million more than what the first movie did and $80 million more than what Bugs Life did. Pixar had their biggest hit yet. It was destined to be a straight-to-tape affair. Well, it had started with Aladdin. If you remember, Aladdin had a quickie sequel that you had to get on VHS. With the voice of Homer Simpson as the genie. And then they made a part three where they actually got Robin Williams back. And that was ugly, too. Like, Robin Williams was pissed that they got Homer Simpson. Poor Dan Castanella. I know his name. I just keep calling him Homer. But do you really want to be the one doing the direct VHS? I mean, again, Lion King, they started doing Beauty and the Beast. That was just Disney's new MO. And it was profitable for him. And my understanding is Disney was the one because they had a three movie deal with Pixar where they would distribute them. It was Disney who said, no, we don't want this. Just put it out to video. This doesn't count. There was a lot of fighting if this would count towards that deal they had or not. Interestingly enough, I took a few classes at UCLA in screenwriting just to, you know, it's a good way of keeping your skills sharp. I had a class taught by Chris Webb, who is one of the credited screenwriters on this film. And, you know, he was very proud to have his name on the film. I think he worked on it before they threw it all away, though. This movie had two movies, really. The one before and after. Well, it got thrown away twice. It was crazy that we even got this film they were working on it. It's 1999. It's got a scheduled release date. They have to hit that date because unlike that first one, there are promotions. Happy Meal Toys, Toys at Toys R Us, they got promotions that they can't go back on. Arnie, you know how that whole cycle works where you got to plan like a year ahead to get these toys out. So they're like, you have to hit this date. 
you could find articles all about this, Arnie. You'd probably understand all the technical stuff. But basically, someone went to delete some stuff on the server and accidentally deleted, like, the root folder. And <sighs> they lost the movie. They were watching and they're seeing files delete and disappear. And they're like, pull the plug, pull the plug. Why didn't they have backups? So they had backups. They had tapes that they could put four gigs on. So they had a bunch of backup tapes. They restore it with those backup tapes and then find out that there's stuff that's corrupt. Again, it's very technical the way computer animation interacts with all the different parts. And so now they're like, we got to figure out all the scenes that are lost. and We're going to have to redo all that. Luckily, there was one of the technical directors. She had a newborn baby, so she was allowed to work at home. And these are not like a regular desktop that they're using. These are like massive, very expensive computers. But she was allowed to have one at home so she could work at home while she watched that newborn baby. And they said they call it the $100 million Volvo because they like carefully lifted this computer and like seatbelted it in, wrapped it in blankets. They drove 35 miles an hour, hazard lights blinking, hoping that a cop would like say what's wrong and escort them to Pixar <laughs> because like they were so worried. They're like, this is the whole movie. And they were able to finally restore it with what she had on her computer. And then, yeah, they started working on it and they're like, this movie's not working. And they, after all this emergency repairs to what they had lost, they had to scrap a bunch of it and and redo it. They weren't happy with the story, and that's the Pixar way. If it's not working, they will scrap it and start from scratch. Well, yes, a, a now playing the more you know moment. Most people don't bother to realize their backups aren't working until they need them. Test your backups before you need them so that you can know if they're corrupt. Yeah, they used to test their backups and they just stopped because they're like, yeah, they'll work. We don't need to test them anymore. And it should be said that Toy Story 2's budget, well, it ends up ballooning close to $100 million. So it's much more expensive proposition. They've hired many more people. Pixar is growing and they need this one to be a hit. And it came down to one woman's computer. <laughs> that is really amazing that that was where all of that money was resting at a certain point in time. You never want it to fall on one computer being trucked into San Francisco. You know... I usually bristle when Disney buys more inventive properties like Marvel and Pixar, but if it took a Disney buyout to get them a decent IT department, thank God. <laughs> but again, they're on the forefront of all this. No one else was really doing this. So yeah, learn from trial and error. I think what also happened was they finished Bugs Life. That was John Lasseter's priority. We need to get the next one out. It's going to be different. We're animating whole new worlds. That's my focus. And once they put that one out in 98, he could then turn around and say, all right, what have you guys been doing with this sequel that I've only kind of been following? And yes, what started out, I think, is a very humble idea. Again, if you were going direct to tape, not even DVD, like VHS, it probably was just a schlocky movie. And then I guess people saw potential. They kept adding ideas and... Yeah, Buster the dog. We talked about that puppy. Like, I guess he wasn't in the original cut and he's kind of got a big scene in this one. Basically, the animators couldn't not care. They couldn't just make a junky Toy Story 2 and they wrote something that was pretty good but wasn't coherent. And John Lasseter came in really with only about a year to fix this film. The first movie was done in four years. Toy Story 2, as we're watching it, more or less was put together in under 12 months. 
Doesn't it take like two months just to render the video? It's astounding. I don't know how they did it. They talk about people being up 48 hours at a time. What I read, Pixar's like, no, we tell our people to go home and rest. We just had very dedicated animators that would stay around the clock to do this. I don't know where the truth is. Like a baby almost died supposedly because one of the animators was so exhausted he forgot to drop the baby off at daycare and left it in the car when he went to work and it was sitting in this, you know, with the windows up. Oh my God. Yeah, it sounded super stressful. Like everyone got carpal tunnel syndrome from this. Wow. Whatever I think about this movie, it's not good enough to kill a baby. No, I mean, no movie is. Let's be clear about that. But yeah, I understand what it is to be under a tight deadline and it sounds like it was an incredibly unfun movie to make the worst scenario but sometimes the best things come out of such stress it wouldn't be the first movie that pulled it together when it looked like all hope was lost and disaster was certain i mean the story of the most beloved movie of all time casablanca was that it was a train wreck bomb all the way up until it premiered and lo and behold this movie had a similar reception it did not get the oscar love it should be said that toy story one was nominated for best screenplay as well as best song all right whatever <laughs> they didn't have a Best Animated Film Oscar at that time. They gave it a special award for its technical innovation. I don't remember what they called it, but it wasn't Best Animated Film. But this movie did not get any of that love, but it made more money, and it really started that debate. Is this one of those rare cases where the sequel was better than the original? I remember definitely weighing in that it was. When I saw this movie in Thanksgiving 1999, I was blown away. That's what I'd heard. I'd heard it was better than the original, and truthfully, it was something I'd always meant to get to, you know? It really, Toy Story 2 flew under my radar. I was busy. I was making plans for my first trip to New York. I had a lot going on in 1999, but when Toy Story 3 came out, I was like, I really need to see these others, because I'd heard Toy Story 2 was better and Toy Story 3 better still, so these are on my bucket list to get to. I just never prioritized them until they came up on now playing schedule. Now, welcome to today. We are here to do that. Arnie, give them the plot. Let's get into Toy Story 2. A few years have passed since Toy Story, and Woody is still Andy Davis's favorite toy. Andy is even going off to cowboy camp and wants to take his talking sheriff doll. But a tear in Woody's arm has him put up on the shelf and Andy goes to camp alone. While Andy is gone, Woody gets mixed up with toys for Mrs. Davis's yard sale, and Ms. Davis knows not to sell Andy's favorite toy, even when offered $50 by local toy store owner Al McWiggin, voiced by Wayne Knight. But Al won't take no for an answer and steals Woody. See, Woody was the final toy Al needed to have a complete set of toys from the 50s puppet show Woody's Roundup. Al had Cowgirl Jessie, voiced by Joan Cusack, Horse Bullseye, and, still mint in box, Stinky Pete the Prospector, voiced by Kelsey Grammer. Now with Woody, he has a complete set, and Al can sell them for a high price to a toy museum in Tokyo. At first, Woody wants to return to Andy, but Jessie and Stinky Pete convince Woody that Andy will just grow up and Woody should stay with them, entertaining generations of children at the museum. So when a rescue party of Andy's toys come, led by Buzz Lightyear, Woody tells them he's decided to stay. But Buzz reminds Woody that a toy's purpose is to be a child's plaything, so Woody tries to return to Andy's house, but is stopped by Stinky Pete, who's tired of living in his box while other toys get played with. With help from the other toys, Woody escapes Al's shipping crate and takes Jesse and Bullseye with him back to Andy's house. And Woody says even when Andy outgrows his new toys, at least he and Buzz will still have each other as credits roll. 
And as credits start, we've talked about how Pixar goes for the beat that is not expected. I don't think that anyone was thinking we would end in deep space with the credits <laughs> zapping at us like we're in a Buck Rogers movie. But they want to give us the beginning that the first movie was supposed to have. Remember, it was supposed to be Andy watching the Buzz Lightyear show and saying, I want the dog. It's funny because to me, this just screamed Star Trek, the way the titles come out and the music and everything. And this would be the second late 1999 Star Trek parody with Tim Allen. This is when Galaxy Quest came out. (laughs) This opening to me, this is Pixar saying, yeah, we know we had limitations with that first one, but now watch this. There was Bugs Life the year before this, but I think people really wanted more Toy Story. And it's just so much bigger here with, yeah, Buzz flying through asteroids and all kinds of environments. I mean, this great scene with these robots surround them and robots pop out of their shoulders and then little tidier robots pop out of their shoulders. I do feel like this is Pixar making a statement. The biggest thing to me, yes, there's a lot of detail. When your point of view Buzz Lightyear and he's looking through his helmet and sees the reflection of himself coming back, don't discount how hard it is to do a transparent, distorted reflection. I mean, they say that at one point, Buzz goes to take Zorg's, his arch enemy, his battery. It's very Indiana Jones looking with the golden idol in that first Raiders of the Lost Ark. And yeah, they said for him to have his hand like just pass through that light, that was groundbreaking technology. I don't understand it all. They get very technical in the commentary, but they were doing amazing things apparently in this film with the animation. It's amazing what you can do with a full staff. I mean, that's part of the difference is they had a lot more money and that buys a lot more people. And even though they were working with time constraints, I mean, they had several years where they made something and I imagine parts of that story are here. I do know a lot of it came together right in the last eight months and you don't notice it. I mean, it does feel, if anything, more epic. It feels like this is well beyond what they were doing four years before. They had to have had some friends at Lucasfilm, though, because there's a lot of Star Wars here. When you get inside Buzz's helmet for that point of view shot, it sounds like Vader's breathing, and eye pops out of a stone like Return of the Jedi. Yes, I thought about that. When Buzz blasts it, it's the sound effect of a TIE fighter firing. When the big doors open in the floor, it's the sound of an AT-AT walking. And even Zerg's power thing when he's reaching in, it's the sound effect of Vader's interrogation droid and lightsabers. So they are completely Star Warsing up this opening. They're also Pixaring it up. I guess the benefit of using these computer animated models is you could throw them into other films. And so they talked about, you know, Bugs Life had a lot of new environments, a lot of riverbeds with rocks. And so for the asteroids, they're like, yeah, we just took those models we made for Bugs Life and changed the angle and changed the lighting. And now they're an asteroid. I don't think we saw Zerg in the first movie, right? He was just implied to be this menacing figure. Yeah, he's referenced, but never see him. And now, yeah, he's clearly some kind of version of Darth Vader and he's popping up here. Another shocker. I got to say, I really didn't think Buzz Lightyear would be blown in half with like a mound of poop (laughs) on legs. Well, I remember all these films. They'll open up with some huge, I guess the last one didn't. That was a mismemory. But I know three, it's going to open up with a big action scene. And then you cut and it's just the toys. And that's what they're imagining. I thought that's what this was going to be. But they're actually playing a, I don't know if they call it a Super Nintendo. It's obviously a Super Nintendo, though. It looks like a Super Nintendo from the top. I put that down as well. But yeah, I didn't know what I was watching because we learned last time Buzz Lightyear is a toy. So to see all of this action, 
I was curious as this Buzz's imagination, as this Andy's imagination. But when Buzz got blasted, yeah, my jaw hit the floor. And then to find out that it's Rex playing the Buzz Lightyear video game, that was a hell of a lot of fun. And it's going to become a running gag. He is obsessed because he can't beat Zerg. He blames his tiny T-Rex arms. I love Rex's neurotic behavior. I can't hit the attack and jump button at the same time. My arms are too tiny. Again, it's not like reference jokes like you'll get with Shrek. It's not slap. It's just good comedy to me. And Woody's a little neurotic as well. He can't find his hat. Normally, I think of him as the glue that makes everyone else calm because he refuses to get flustered. But he is very concerned that he's not going to be able to go to cowboy camp with Andy, who is leaving in just a few minutes. Is there such a thing as cowboy camp? I'm sure there is. There's a camp for things you can't believe there are camps. Yeah. I know somebody that sent their kid to Harry Potter camp this summer. So, yes, I can believe that somebody somewhere has organized a cowboy camp. Again, it, this has always felt like a reference out of time. I've never felt like the 90s in any way. Yes, there were Western. Thank you, Kevin Costner. But I don't think that they were ever marketed towards children or kids entertainment. No, I don't think Kurt Russell's tombstone was aimed at youngins. <laughs> no, I think this was the thought of how the 50s became the 60s. Kids were playing with cowboys, loving Howdy Doody, and then lo and behold, the space race changed all of that, and they wanted Star Trek. Do kids still play with Lincoln Logs, too? I mean, I noticed there were Lincoln Logs and Mr. Potato Heads. 1999, my youngest nieces and nephews were six, seven, and they were video game zombies. I guess he's got a Super Nintendo, so it's got to be in the 90s, but it feels kind of timeless. It's four years after the first Toy Story when this is released. I don't think four years have passed. Andy still looks the same age. No, Molly is just learning to walk. I mean, they still have that puppy. That puppy's still small, so yeah. We see a calendar that says August. We knew the last movie ended at Christmas. I'm betting eight months have passed. Yeah. And I do like that Woody is worried about his hat. A toy collector is a big part of this movie. So to have a toy worried about all his accessories, it's just, if you're a collector, you're worried about all those accessories. You got to have all the original accessories. No repros. Right. And then he has even more to worry about because he sustains an injury. An injury so bad that Andy can't take him to camp. Yeah, this is the shocking moment to me is that Buzz, to me, I knew that was some imaginary tale, but here he's no longer, uh, well, he probably wasn't mint condition anyway because Andy wrote his name on his boot, but that's a major thing. I remember when a toy would break or I'd lose a major accessory for it. That was a bummer. Like I would put that toy on the shelf most likely and forget about it. Oh God, I went through so many hundreds of hours of toy repair as a child trying to teach myself how to fix anything that broke. And usually it wasn't me breaking it. Usually it was was a defect in manufacturing or something like that. Cheap plastic. Manglores. Yeah. But to see this, I never had much to do with stuffed animals, so I couldn't relate to the tearing of the seam. But it seems like, yeah, that's something easy to fix. Unlike we're going to meet Wheezy the Penguin up there, and that seems like a harder fix. He His squeaker's broken. When my dog has a squeak toy and the squeaker's broken, my dog is getting a new squeak toy. I'm not trying to fix it. Yeah, I mean, let's just call it what it is. In this day and age, what do you repair? I mean, everything is just made to break and you buy a new one. I mean, I don't think that there are industries too often where we have people come and fix your toaster or your TV or any parts. We live in a very disposable world. 
my daughter dropped her phone in the toilet and we had to buy her a whole new freaking phone. And that's an expensive toy. There still are TV repairmen. I deal with TV repairmen, car repairmen, and computer repairmen. When you start dealing with four figures, you fix it. Unless you're Apple, you gotta buy a new iPhone. And those are four figures now. Get her a flip phone if she drops it in the toilet. But yes, I agree. My parents' era was always fix, fix, fix. The toaster broke, let's fix it. The coffee maker broke, let's fix it. Our generation... Ain't nobody got time for that. Everybody's working, you know? I think it was easier to do when you had somebody staying at home. It's not just a generation. I mean, they don't make it like they used to. That's not just a slogan. That was someone's idea. We'll make them cheap and make them keep buying it. That has been something forced upon us. Built-in obsolescence is a thing. Like, they build things to just break and make you replace them now. So this feels very much... Like an anxiety anyone would have. If I have a tear and I'm not mint condition and Andy can walk away and even go to a cowboy themed camp without me, when he comes back, am I going to be loved? We see it in a dream sequence that he really fears that the next stop is the dumpster. And again, good animation there. It gets a little psychedelic and everything. It's Yeah, I love he falls into a trash can with a bunch of arms and they start dragging him down. Again, they had that little exorcist moment in the first Toy Story and they're not afraid to go a little bit horror. And I want to just say while we're talking about the animation, it is clearly a step up. I can't believe oh, yeah. they did this in such a short time because the lighting, the rendering, it's only been four years, but it's almost like an entire generation of animation improvement has happened here that dog the puppy is so much better here than so much better yeah. we had with sid's dog last time yeah and uh, but that's also true even if you look at the shorts the one that they put out in 1984 compared to the one that won in the oscar in 1988 you can see every four years there is a quantum jump and so that's exciting. If we were doing a Pixar series, I think that we would see that even today with, I guess the most recent would be the one that we saw last summer, Incredibles 2. They always are upping their technical prowess. Just the use of color, their palette choices, the way that they have kind of the yellow for the sunlight and then pops of red in it and everything. Yeah, the color seems more saturated in this one. It felt a little washed out in Toy Story 1 here. Yeah, it just feels richer. Mm -hmm. And they're in a new house. It is not the same Andy's room, but I think that they're close. They wanted to make it similar. Yeah, I feel like they maybe moved across town as opposed to a different state. That's my <laughs> impression anyway. It still has Al's toy. Born. That's what I can tell you. It's the same local ad that we saw for Buzz Lightyear in the first movie. He is still out there pushing his wares on TV. And once I hear that voice and I know, hello, Newman, <laughs> I know that this guy's going to be a villain. I mean, poor Wayne Knight, but Jurassic Park, Seinfeld for years, and to a degree, his role in Basic Instinct, he's just never going to play a good guy. Yeah, and, you know, it's an interesting take on the villain. You know, last time Sid was, I mean, it was obvious. He had a skeleton on his shirt, and he blew up toys. You know, he had those nasty teeth, and he snarled and laughed and made his sister cry. I mean, this is a more subtle take. He's an adult. He's a nerd. He's someone that ostensibly loves toys, fetishizes them. That's what I find so shocking with this one is the villain. And I love this film. And I remember one of the selling points because Arnie, I was getting into Star Wars collecting too because of the Phantom Menace. My dad's like, well, it's about a toy collector. You'll love it. Except he is the villain. It's weird because this is Disney Pixar. They are going to merchandise the hell out of this film. They're going to make a lot of money off of collectibles for this film. But it is kind of an anti-collector 
mentality throughout it. Like, the Collector is the villain. Don't lock those things up in the box. Let them be free. It was not too long after this that they started selling Toy Story statues for hundreds of dollars at the Disney parks. I did go to eBay today, and I always go to the sold ones, because you can put whatever price you want trying to sell something, but I'm like, Toy Story, and let's look at the sold, let's sort by highest. There was a Buzz Lightyear with the new utility belt, like we see in this one. It sold for $10,000. I was trying to figure out why that was going for $10,000, but then there were other Toy Story toys and collectibles. Yeah, $1,000, hundreds of dollars. There is a whole collecting market for this. And... The MSRP on a lot of this stuff is hundreds of dollars. Disney can become an expensive collecting hobby. And so to mock the ones that line their pockets is an interesting choice. Yeah, I like the anti-commercialism, but then I'm like, eh, it's also Disney, though. So I don't know how seriously I could take it. Yeah, me thinks they protest too much about this. I think they're more than fine with overcharging for things. Here's what they do. It's not just that he's a collector. That isn't his flaw. His flaw is he's a thief. Yeah, like with Sid, where I'm like, no, he's a creative kid, but no, he's going to blow his toys up. So maybe that's what makes him bad. Yeah, they got to make him a thief. And that's what really tells you he's bad. It's a little protracted, but yes, they introduced this Wheezy the Penguin, who I'm sorry, but yeah, he is the 25 cent bin at a yard sale. <laughs> Mom is right to take him off the shelf. 25 cents? I'll let a kid take it for free. <laughs> exactly. But we see her go through all the toys. She doesn't pick any of our our favorites she picks the things that andy does not play with and so he will not miss that they sell at this yard sale i do not think she's doing something cruel behind his back by hosting this yard sale but through a series of circumstance because basically woody is a hero that doesn't want to let his friend wheezy go he rides in there gets stuck on a table and then yes al comes lowballing a terrible trick of grabbing a bunch of junk and saying, I'll pay you 50 cents for this. Really, he's ripping her off right there. And then when she still says no and puts it in a lockbox, he breaks in and steals it. Stuart, you never run a garage sale or sold anything on Craigslist because that's all that happens to you is people trying to lowball you. I don't hold that against him. But yeah, the fact that he steals Woody, who wrote in on Buster that dog, which was, again, this was something during the rewrite to have... The dog, you think of Sid's dog, that's going to be scary and it's going to attack the toys. The fake out here is that it's friends with the toys. They interact with them. They, as much of a dog can know that they're alive, he knows they're alive. And yeah, Woody goes riding him like a horse and sneaks in there, but ultimately gets caught. I think it's important that what we see Woody doing here is kind of a replay of the last movie. He's out to rescue the toy. Last time he was out to rescue Buzz. Here, he's out to rescue Wheezy, and he doesn't even have the necessity of needing to clear his name. He's just a good leader to these toys. He's going to put himself in danger trying to rescue Wheezy. And it does get Wheezy out of there, but yes, it also means Woody is going to be taken by Al, who is just a gross stereotype of a toy collector, if I may say, with the comb over and the hairy arms. Yeah, and overweight and short and waddling around. I, I understand it's not flattering, and I realize that might hit you guys in certain places because I am not balding, sir. Me either. Can you see my hair? I'm not saying you look like this. I'm saying they're talking about your people. They're labeling your people. You are both collectors or have been at certain points in time. And so, yeah, this is playing to the worst kinds of stereotypes. But I will just say, Lasseter says, we modeled this on me. 
because I'm a collector and we tried to make it personal. Like we weren't making fun of anybody. We looked around the room at the animators and said, okay, let's do you and you and you. Well, no wonder the women were running from him and screaming me too. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) But I like that he takes him back to the toy barn. The toy barn's using the Toy Story font. I mean, the sign for the toy barn looks like the sign that's on the movie that I went to see. Sure. Advertising. Yep. Technical problem here. Does his car change colors? Yes. It was turquoise, then it was yellow, and then it was green at one point. I really think that that, again, last minute trying to put this movie together, we ought to be grateful that there's not more errors, but I think that might have been something that they overlooked. (laughs) It's also worth pointing out, Buzz also tries to be a hero here. He chases after. We think that he's going to slip in the back because that's what these toys do. And no, he only manages to fall off, open the trunk as he does. Those white feathers and that license plate, they're going to have to do a little bit of sleuthing to figure out who this is. It took me a while to see L-Z-T-Y-B-R-N is Al's Toy Barn. I know. I kept thinking I'm like lazy something, but yeah, then I realized it's L's Toy Barn. Yeah. Yeah. I think that Rex needs to go on bumper stumpers for figuring that out. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that. And I had a Mr. Speak and Spell. I do like them trying to deduce all of this. And, you know, Tim Allen's a much bigger star by 1999. Slightly. I mean, jungle to jungle. TV star, though. (laughs) Yeah, he had home improvement and the Santa Claus had come out. Much bigger than he was when he recorded the first movie. But not anywhere compared to, you know, the fact that Hanks agreed to come back was everything. I mean, there would have been no movie if Hanks said, I'm not doing it. If they didn't get Alan, then yeah, maybe Patrick Warburton isn't busy, you know? (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to him. But what I'm saying is you need to give each of them a story now. If you're not going to partner them up, you're going to have to make each of them equally important. By each of them, you mean Buzz and Woody, because I don't know if anyone's dying for a Rex (laughs) story. I I love Rex, but I don't know if I want a whole movie about him. The only one I want the whole movie about is the aliens. But no, I'm (laughs) saying Buzz and Woody need to be equally important. So we get to see Buzz leading the rescue mission. And he's going to have his own story, too, while Woody is off alone exploring himself. Yeah, I felt like they had that in the first film. Do you agree that they both were equally important to Toy Story 1? Yeah, but it was the story of Buzz entering. Now Buzz is part of the community. You have to make sure he doesn't fall into the background crowd with Bo Peep and Slinky Dog. Right. I do feel like with Toy Story 1, that if I had to decide who that was more about, it would be Woody. It's about him coming to terms with, you know, oh, here's newer toys. And there's a story for Buzz, too. I talked about that with his depression when he loses his arm, but uh, a little bit more of a Woody story. And I think this is more of a Woody story. Look, it's Tom Hanks, and it's weird because I would think you'd want to put the new Spaceman as the face of your franchise, but they're going with the old-fashioned cowboy, and that seems to work. Yeah, it explains some things. When we finally have Al take him up to his penthouse on the 31st floor, living larger than I would have guessed, he could certainly afford better outfits and more grooming, but I guess it's a choice. But the point is that once Woody is there and finds out who he really is, it's the inverse of what we got last time. Last time, Buzz Lightyear didn't know that he was this toy. Woody knew he was a toy, but he didn't know he was a collectible. He didn't know what his value was, and that's going to change. He didn't know he had a family. He didn't know there was a howdy doody like TV show about him in the 50s. But we did say a cowboy seemed a little out of place in the 90s. Yes. Somehow, Andy has ended up with this 40-year-old semi-mint 
cowboy toy. I love that, actually. That explains so much. I don't know why. It was just slightly bugging me that a child of the 90s would have such a fascination. And the truth is, they're not trying to tell us every child of the 90s did. This is specific to Andy and his missing father. I'm going to just hypothesize. (laughs) There is something in the relationship that he's seeking there. This is what's weird to me, though. This is where I'm, like, trying to figure out the logistics, which is a losing game. I understand that. But this show is really popular. Al's trying to put together a complete set. I would think Woody Woody's Roundup, that would be the main toy that was produced the most of. But this seems to be, like, the only one he could find. There's eBay. They, they, I feel like there would be more of these Woodies around to find. I agree completely. I was thinking that, that you'd be able to find a Woody in box. That would be the one that was most common. I think Prospector Pete, the one that goes on the clearance rack, would be the hard one to get. I don't know. You you know stories about the Rancor Keeper who was supposedly on pegs years after the Star Wars line was discontinued by Kenner. So, and that one's still a pretty cheap toy to get, even on card. Yeah, but if you look at the old, old G.I. Joe toys... The G.I. Joe himself is the easiest one to get. When you start getting into some of the other characters who I can't name off the top of my head, those are really rare. I actually adore Bullseye. Bullseye! Because he's a dog, really. Exactly. Like, you start (laughs) to get why he wouldn't need to go back to Andy's if he has any concern that he may not be well-received there. Well, he's going to get some of that same love in this crowd. Bullseye is a dog that, yeah, he can ride around and doesn't have a voice, but clearly has a a stare. They were going to have him talk originally, and they decided against that. Good decision. Yeah, good decision. Why wouldn't he talk? I mean, the pig talks, the T-Rex talks. I don't know why the horse wouldn't talk. He works better as a giant puppy dog that Woody rides around on. He, he just has so much personality that way. In all these collectibles, what I think is interesting, they each have different reactions to being collectibles and being reunited with Woody. Like, Bullseye is super excited. Then we get Jessie, the cowgirl. Man, I feel bad for Jessie. She is suffering from some PTSD. Like, at one point, she is curled up in that fetal position, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, she's overjoyed to see Woody. I believe her genuinely. She likes him, but also what he means for her not to be stuffed in a dark room. I mean, like, they've been in storage and will be returned to storage should anything happen to this Woody doll. Arnie, I gotta know, do you feel bad for all your collectibles that are sitting in storage? This is what they're going through. I might have had a guilty feeling. Stuart has even (laughs) helped me move the boxes into the storage. Oh, no. It's basically the Guantanamo Bay of toys. You're an accomplice. It was endless. (laughs) It was. Every time you thought you were done, there would be 10 more boxes. So, yes, I felt a little guilty, and it is a plan to reclaim and free my toys later this year. But, yeah, Jessie here, we're going to learn her story that this is the theme of the movie. She had an owner. It was a little girl who liked to play with the doll. And the little girl grew up and we get to see this montage. It's obviously the 60s. We get a little bit of music similar to the mamas and the papas going on. Sarah McLaughlin. It might not be Randy Newman singing. I think he's still writing and doing the score. But Sarah McLaughlin gets the big musical number. It's the most devastating Sarah McLaughlin song ever. Like. <laughs> Even more than those abused dog commercials? Yeah, I used to have to run and change it. When I heard In the Arms of the Angel, those cats in the cages, I'm like, I can't take it. Get that off. I don't want to process it. This one hurts me worse. This is a devastating... It's like cats in the cradle for the new generation. Because what we're really dealing with is neglect of a child. We see Jesse as this child who loves Emily. And when Emily would rather put on makeup with new human friends 
and she ends up dusted under the bed. It just hurts in the core. Again, they're doing what they did so well with the first one where, okay, what if a toy lost its owner? What would it feel like? You're exploring the emotions of a toy, but then there's also real life emotions built into that. And I thought about my daughters because one, I can't believe this is happening. She's moving in those teenage years, very worried. And the other one is still eight. And so they just have different interests. And you see that with Emily and Jesse. Like, Emily's getting older. She replaces her dolls with makeup. And the eight-year-old now, she's like, "Uh, older sister doesn't want to play with me anymore because they just have different interests and they grow apart. And that's a part of growing up. And friendships come and go, especially when you're in elementary school and middle school and all that. So they nail both just this fantasy element of what would a toy feel in the situation. But man, then they nail you with that human emotion and it's heartbreaking. See, yeah, I never took this as child neglect because she was neglecting her doll. I went, there's actually a biblical quote I think about often, and it's from Corinthians. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. You know, we are a generation, and I believe the first generation, and Jacob and I are not unique in this regard, that Generation X held on to toys and collectibles and really hundreds of thousands of Americans feed an industry of, yes, Swarovski crystal Buzz Lightyears for $350. You know, I'm it's strange sounding to me, but then when they made a Swarovski crystal Yoda, I was like, well, maybe. (laughs) So I think about that a lot. And what we're dealing with here, though, is the maturation process where, yeah, I certainly grew out of some toys and sold a lot of toys. And my God, does this movie make me feel guilty for my GoBots that I sold a few years ago? (laughs) Those GoBots deserve to go. Throw them in the incinerator. (laughs) That is one of the points Jesse makes is, hey, owners are going to forget about you and throw you in the garbage dump. Or maybe Stinky Pete makes that point, but they're all trying to convince Woody he should stay. I don't think the movie is advocating you need to go dig up those toys and play with them again. It understands this is the natural order of things. They have come to terms with that. They just don't want to be alone. Like, they don't want to be stuck in a dark box for the rest of their life. And again, it's about feeling of neglect. What's my purpose? Existentialism. Yet again, they're playing into those themes. They're deepening those themes with these characters. And what's interesting, again, they come from these different points of view. So for Jesse, she doesn't want to go back into storage because PTSD from losing Emily and being locked away and not having someone to love her. Stinky Pete's totally different. He loves being a collectible. He loves being mint in box. This is his claim to fame because no one wants the prospector. No one wanted Stinky Pete as a toy. So the fact that he is mint in box and he's going to be displayed for all to see, like this is a big deal to him. I love that there's all these varying motivations for these characters. It's not just cut and paste for everyone. Joan Cusack, I think, is a really good voice for Jesse. I'm trying to figure out if Jesse and Woody are forming a relationship, if Bo Peep needs to be jealous. It (laughs) kind of seems like the cowboy and the cowgirl would pair up. Stinky Pete, though, voiced by Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey Grammer, to me, will always be Frasier. He's refined. He's, you know, even when he played Beast in X-Men, the reason he played Beast is because Beast is a dichotomy. He's very smart. He's very refined, but he looks like a big blue dog. So I just don't picture Kelsey Grammer as a stinky Pete. 
I think that's the red herring is that, yeah, you're getting this character that sounds very refined. We're going to find out he's actually the most sinister. He's the one trying to sabotage Woody escaping and making Jesse look like the culprit, but it's really him behind. But he's just got that old fashioned wisdom that he's going to keep speaking to. And so, yeah, it does throw you off. Yeah, you forget about him because Jessie runs so hot and she's so quick with her uh, temper and emotions and pouting. And when she senses that Woody is going to leave and thus force all of them back into the box, why wouldn't she be the one trying to sabotage that? We don't pay attention to Kelsey Grammer. We think of him as, yeah, the wise old guy. And what becomes interesting is, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense. No one has ever loved him. No one has ever taken him out of that box. He has never been touched why wouldn't he be callous? Why wouldn't he be self-interested? It's true in people, too. If they don't get the love that they need, they're usually not functional. He takes it a step further. He was mad because he was unsold. Somehow, he wasn't just bought and kept in the box. He was left on the shelf. He was discounted down. I mean, I think that would have sold home a little more. I have some of those Star Wars figures that Jacob was talking about. And the funny thing is, I'm paying hundreds of dollars for them. But there's like eight price stickers on them that started at $2.99. And each one's like 50 cents down. And so the top one says like a buck 49. And then somebody markers through that. So somebody paid 75 cents for this thing. I think that would have helped sell. Nobody liked Stinky Pete. Nobody wanted to buy Stinky Pete. That's why he's still mint in boxes. He was a clearance item. Yeah, I mean, you get that. I mean, you get that when you see the show. Like, he's not the featured character. Again, Stinky. He's got the pickaxe stuck in his butt. Yeah, he's the comic character. Stinky. Nobody wants anything that is stinky. And again, he's not helpful. He's not a cowboy. He never saves the day. He may even be a villain. I mean, he gets Jesse in trouble in the final episode. They're stuck in the Grand Canyon in a cave-in because he was doing something with dynamite trying to find gold. It's his fault. They're in danger. So yeah, I mean, there are always those characters that are a part of a show but aren't easy to sell as merchandise. He'd be the last one you'd buy if you had an allowance and you could only get one a week. He would be the last one you picked up and maybe you never did get him. Yeah, I'd buy the little toy snake in the boot before I'd buy Stinky Pete. (laughs) For sure. But Woody loses that arm. It was torn and it gets caught like on a little display stand and it totally falls off. We got to get him restored if the Japanese are going to buy him. Another callback. I mean, I feel like on one level, this movie is doing exactly what the first movie did. Only this time it's happening to Woody instead of Buzz. I agree. And another callback. I knew this cleaner, Jerry the Cleaner. He looked familiar. This is the guy that's going to restore Woody. I had to look him up, though. I'm like, I've seen this character. This character is the star of Jerry's Game, another Pixar short that played before Bug's Life, I believe. I thought for sure that there was going to be a story here about how Andy wouldn't accept Woody as his own because he paints over the Andy on the bottom of Woody's foot to make him look mint again. And first of all, that's some deceptive sh**. I was going to call this out. I was thinking the same thing. When I was buying vintage Star Wars toys on eBay before I really knew what I was doing, I got so many repro weapons that weren't original. People just cast them themselves, and that is looked down upon. You're supposed to let people know that these are fake weapons. I would be pissed if I got a blue snaggletooth and somebody repainted those boots silver and it was not the original silver and they passed it off as such. That is sneaky. That is not refurb toys. 
fixing a seam that had the stitches, that's acceptable. Repainting the bottom of the boot, that's deceptive. Yeah, which Al is. That's exactly what you want in a villain. This is a guy that stole him from the lockbox and has done lots of unethical things since then. And again, the significance of having Andy's name erased because the whole mystery will... Would he go back home when he has the chance? Or does he get that pole of fame and recognition? We saw that. He likes getting all that attention. We saw that in the first Toy Story. And he's tempted by that again. He's thousands of people, millions maybe, will be looking at him in a museum in Japan. And so there is that pole. So I think as someone that has been involved in the collecting community, that is bad ethics. But I get the significance of it. It's a nice little detail. Plus, I do think both of them really get into his head about Well, I mean, it happened to Jesse, you know, to her owners lose interest. Why would Andy always play with you? And Stinky Pete makes the point. Is he going to take you to college? You're going to go on his honeymoon? At some point, this comes to an end. What you have with him is not forever. What you can have with us is. And we found out Woody's Roundup went out of popularity. It was canceled on that cliffhanger because of Sputnik. And that all the kids were into space toys after that. Yeah, it's just the cycle of life. And this movie is not demonizing that. It understands very well. What I respect about Toy Story 2 is it's not trying to say, you guys are bad for being fickle and throwing away your toys. No, we all do it. It's a part of it. If you live in this world, in this day and age, at one point, you're going to be disposable. And what are you going to do about it? How do you talk about this with children? This is a great place to start. Yeah, I think this is much less traumatic than The Lion King or Bambi, where you get to see the parents slayed and the children go on. But this is the circle of toy life. And I do think it's deeper than those. I do think the emotional depths that these films go, these are things 10, 12, whatever years ago, whenever I last watched these, that I'm like, oh yeah, this is great. These are great characters. But really paying attention this time, these are deep emotions. Like, I don't even know if I, I really knew how to voice them before I watched this for this review. I'm like, okay, I get what's going on and I see this going on with my girls and how do we talk about that? It's amazing where they go with these films. Yeah, it's adult. They respect the adults in the audience, even though I feel like kids are going to understand some of this. They understand the gist of this. I think it's a great movie in that the youngest kids I don't think will understand it but will just like the toy antics and will probably cater more to the buzz storyline that's going to happen whereas as they grow older and they revisit this movie again and again what they think of it and what they'll see in it will change and mature and I think we get a bad rap that a lot of people say oh now playing you host you don't like animated films who's the target audience for that and I feel like This really is all ages in the best sense of that term. Because yes, the little kids, they'll like all the little funny antics and chases and all that. And adults, there's just a lot of things to really delve into. Let me be clear. I love the chase too. When we see Buzz leading the toys across that crowded street wearing the safety cones, that's a really exciting sequence. That's a thrilling moment. They'll stop in patterns that make the traffic do all kinds of wonky things. Yes, it's funny stuff. And I was watching this with my wife she truly does have an animation bias you know when we do a cure and talk about anime oh boy she does not like that stuff but she was like chuckling and enjoying herself during this and she went in like oh i don't want to watch these stupid cartoons but there's a lot of humor here like they get to al's toy barn and they're just toys they're too small too light to like activate the door and so yeah a lot of neat little obstacles they got to solve and i think it's like the first movie What Woody is going through, 
through is what Buzz goes through. It's just pitch different. What Buzz, his existential crisis is when he gets to that aisle. I mean, that is a powerful moment when he sees hundreds of himself lining that aisle and it just hits home that, yeah, you're nothing special. In fact, that one's got a utility belt. Yeah, that, he's outdated all of a sudden. The newest thing is there. And they do make a joke. You know, at one point, Barbie's going to explain to him, oh, yeah, there's so many buzzes because Toy Stores vastly underestimated the demand for this toy, which <laughs> was a direct reference to what happened with the first film and in the marketing. Yeah, but it looks like Buzz is about to go on discount. There's too many of them. <laughs> if he was truly in demand, it would be like the Cabbage Patch Kid craze where you just can't keep them in stock. It would be more like Turbo Man from Jingle All the Way. Oh, who knows? This is Al's Toy Barn. I don't know if we can judge national sales based on what's going on in this local... This isn't even a national chain. Yeah, I, it's one store, as far as I can tell, that makes the owner get in a chicken costume to sell it on TV. But this is just cool postmodern stuff. When Buzz faces what Woody had to face last movie, an annoying guy from outer space who doesn't know he's a toy. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because so much of Buzz's character in the last film was him thinking he wasn't a toy. And this is really weird because we keep going back. Well, I'm going to go back to Lethal Weapon. But you take a character that's suicidal and he's not suicidal anymore. Now what do you do with them? Listen to our reviews to see what we think they do with Mel Gibson's character. But it's a similar problem with Buzz because he thought he was a real thing and now he knows he's a toy. But that was so much of his character. You know, what do you do with him now? Oh, put him back in that situation, but on the side of Woody. And Arnie, I don't know if you were thinking Star Trek, but they did say that Woody meeting Woody, this is a direct reference to the enemy within with Kirk versus evil Kirk. I got a lot of Star Trek off the beginning. I didn't put that one together. What I find interesting is all the other toys, Potato Head, Rex, Slinky Dog, Ham, they can't tell when Buzz gets replaced. They're just like, oh, where'd you get the nice belt? But I think Ham is a little smitten with Barbie. Oh, I, lo I love when they roll up to Barbie. They, first of all, they're like, I think we went down this aisle. No, it's pink. Remember Toys R Us used to do like there were gendered aisles and you could tell when you were in the girl section because of that. Oh, they still do. I mean, if you go to Walmart, there's the pink aisle and there's the action figure aisle that doesn't have a shred of pink in it. But yeah, I love that. Yeah, the, all the Barbies, I guess Mattel realized their mistake and said, yes, use Barbie, please. Because there's a whole dollhouse. And again, my wife's like, oh my gosh, I had that house and getting nostalgic over all these Barbie toys. But this is funny stuff. They are spitten by Barbies. And they're not turning her into Sarah Connor, which is what you suggested they were going to do in Sid's room last time. They aren't changing the way we think of the property I had never heard Barbie speak before, but this is what I imagined her to, to sound like. And there was a talking Barbie that was very controversial because it would say, math, math is hard. hard. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. You're going back to the 60s. But. No, no. I'm talking 90s. Are you sure? I'm 100% yeah. sure. Yes. 100. Yeah. The, the Simpsons did a whole episode on that. Like, it was such a big thing. They also don't make her what I would probably do if I were writing this which is Pam Anderson, just a complete dance because, you know, Barbie's proportions are not humanly possible. So I would have probably gone the Baywatch Babe route. 
I mean, they don't quite go there. I mean, there are Barbies like in bathing suits swimming, but the way they animate her and tells they pay attention, they played with some Barbies because that was a very stiff doll. Like my sisters had Barbies and once in a while, like this is boring, this is dumb. They don't bend like a G.I. Joe does. But the way she walks is very stiff. When she's driving, she can't bend her fingers because it's just a molded hand with her like fingers out. It's these little details that really sell it. And I felt like in the last movie, they cheated with articulation. Bo Peep should not be able to bend mid forearm. I can't bend mid forearm. I don't know how she does. And so the fact that they're sticking to the articulation points of the doll, I like that a little bit more. It makes me smile. It's a funny bit, but it is only a bit. I was surprised they kind of get rid of Barbie as soon as she joins them. She does not become part of the team. She does not want to go back with Andy. It's just all here so they can do a Jurassic Park riff with Rex chasing <laughs> after the car. Oh, that was great. Well, I mean, Rex was inspired by Jurassic Park, and they're like, we have to do it. If there's a car and a dinosaur, we have to do it. I'm sorry. That was my biggest laugh out loud moment in this movie. Didn't see it coming. But it's a neurotic T-Rex, which makes it even funny. <laughs> Well, I like the fact that the first thing he sees when he walks in this toy store is like, oh, there's the hint book for the video game. Yeah, the strategy guy. And he gets mad. He's like, no one can play this game without spending more money. Like, he's calling out the dark side of toy marketing. I mean, I just think (laughs) there's a lot of subversiveness going on in this movie. Which I like. Again, I don't buy into it too much because it's Disney, but this is the Steve Jobs, the hippie, the Pixar side. I do like that they're willing to make these comments and make these jabs. And I just want to point out, they're not Disney yet. Disney is giving them half the money and is distributing the movies. Again, they were the ones saying, we're going to put this out on VHS and on DVD. Yeah, they're still giving them notes. But this is still an independent Steve Jobs kind of side project company. They have their own voice up until 2006. When Toy Story 3 comes, you can call it Disney. Right now, this is Disney being one of many people making suggestions to what Pixar is doing as an independent company. Yeah, after Toy Story, I said when we reviewed Toy Story, when I saw that, I didn't know what a Pixar was. I knew what Disney was and they were at the beginning logo of that film. The success of that changed everything. By the time A Bug's Life came out, Pixar was its own thing. And kind of like how Marvel Studios started out, Iron Man was distributed by Paramount and Hulk by Universal, but they were the production studio until Disney bought them. That's what we got going on here with Pixar, too. I remember reading interviews with Lasseter, who's like, can't wait to get out of this Disney contract because Universal is just waiting to give us a lot of money. Again, they had a three-picture deal because Disney was putting this out originally for home viewing and not going to theaters. They said this one doesn't count in our three-picture deal. We're going to essentially get your fourth movie, too. They counted half the money, though, that they took. Yeah, it's dirty. I can understand why they didn't want to work with Disney, but seven years later, they did sell to them and are still with them now, and Lasseter's not there, so there you go. But Buzz does have his own crisis here because he's left behind and the one with the utility belt goes on. And again, just like last time, he thinks he's going after Commander Zerg. And the toys start to get on to him a little bit by the time that they're breaking into Al's penthouse. 
I don't know. He gives him a lot of credit, which I think makes the toys go along with him. I love these, like, Lizard Man and Vegetable Man and Slotted Pig. Like, these toys are very uh, easy to influence if you're Woody or Buzz Lightyear, and they just kind of go along with it. Yeah, they do catch on a little bit, but Rex has got that strategy guide. He wants to solve the game, and this Buzz feels like he would know how to do it. It's not obvious until they're facing off against one another. There's two Buzzes. Which one's the real one? Well, the one that doesn't gasp when you throw up his helmet and the one that has Andy written on the bottom of his foot. There's an easy tell. And this is the moment where Woody has to make a decision. What are you going to do? I get that you don't want to abandon your new friends and by leaving them, you're fading them to be going into a box probably forever. But are you really saying that you don't care about Andy anymore? Are you really willing to accept the fact that the kid's going to cry when he comes home from cowboy camp? Well, he was put on that shelf with the broken penguin, so I could see why he would feel first spurned. Yeah, I understand everyone's point of view, which is good drama. That's the best way to tell a story is when no one is evil and everyone has a point and they have to figure it out together. And I like when Woody calls back to what Stinky Pete said. Stinky Pete's like, is he going to take you to college? And Woody says... You know, he can't stop Andy from growing up, but he could be with them for as long as he could be with them, you know, which is a very adult attitude. Like, especially when you get older, it's like your friends go and you just don't make as many friends as when you're a kid. And that's part of growing up. And so it's a very adult attitude that I'm going to be friends with this kid for as long as I could be friends with them. And I do think Randy Newman had a little bit to do with this change of heart because he was showing them the marionette show. And we find out the song goes all the way back to that 50s black and white show where the original Woody is singing it a cappella. Those notes. I've noticed Randy Newman does all the music in this. It's He's still very much involved, but because he's not singing his own stuff. It's better. Yeah, I like it a lot more. I don't mean to make that sound uglier than it is, but I do feel like his compositions are stronger than his voice. He doesn't have a bad voice, but I think for this movie, it works better with other voices. Yeah, and certainly that they're bringing in a female perspective. Sarah McLaughlin was definitely the way to go with When She Loves Me. I mean, I heard the demo version with Randy, and it's awful. But Woody changes his mind pretty quickly. The toys do not get too far before Woody realizes maybe being behind glass and watching the children. And I think it's Buzz who got to him. He throws back in Woody's face, life's only worth living if you're being loved by a kid. Right. That was what was sold to him last movie. And it makes sense to remind Woody now that he seems to have forgotten that. The other thing that's happening in Woody's favor, Jesse is starting to perk up to the idea that she could come with. She doesn't want to go in the box, but yeah, if I can go home and Molly, there's a little girl that might love me. All right, I'll give that a shot. I don't know why Woody didn't offer that up in the first place. Just be like, yeah, come with me. You don't have to go back in the box. You can just come with me and be with my owner. Interestingly enough, who throws the kibosh in that? Who breaks out their pickaxe? Who actually leaves their packaging? Comes out of the box. Yes, I love how they gasp. You're no longer mitten box. And he did it before. He also, like the paint on Woody's boot, was a lie. He had come out of the box earlier to turn on the television to interrupt Woody. And So what is it with him? Is he afraid to be loved? Is he afraid to be touched? Would he prefer to always be behind glass so that kids can admire but not be near him? Well, I think it's just like the novelty that he's mitten box. I feel like he is the Al Bundy who scored a touchdown in high school, and that's all he talks about even when he's middle-aged. This is the one thing that makes him special that he's got to hold on to. To me, it's a chance for a happy life for being what he is, which is an unloved toy. It's a place where unloved toys can go. 
But he could go home and be loved potentially by Andy. He doesn't want to change that identity. He is still holding on to his anger and saying, I don't want children to touch me. I don't think that Andy would love him. I think part of the chip on Stinky Pete's shoulder is he's Stinky Pete. No boy wanted him. Nobody bought him in the 50s, let alone today. It could be that fear of rejection. So you put up that wall. Again, getting into some very human emotions is that he went unloved. You read these stories, especially like these orphanages in Romania and these kids like come to America and like they can't deal with being in a family because they were rejected for so long. They're very antisocial. It's some heartbreaking stories that you could read about. But that's how I see Stinky Pete. He was rejected so much. He's got this wall. He needs a lot of therapy so he could cuddle up to someone. I see him that way too. I don't see him as made unlovable. He wasn't bought because he was unlovable. He wasn't bought because he wasn't the star. And so he was outshone. It ended up becoming this chip on his shoulder that walled him away from accepting any kind of love. I don't think he looks as going to Japan as it's just going to be me and my friends. I don't think he has friends. I don't think that he has let love into his heart. I think being in that box has made him very, very callous. Regardless, he uses that pickaxe to seal the air vent, and they're going with Al, because he comes back, packs him up, doesn't have time for a shower, they're off to Japan. And I don't want to think of Wayne Knight without a shower. That's a long flight. I don't know where the Tri-County area is, but that's a long flight to Japan, no matter what. That I did like how they were traveling first class, custom foam inserts. And so now, yeah, it's we're in the full climax. Woody's got to get away from Pete, and he's got to bring Jesse with him, and how are they going to do that? Complicating the matter is when the real Buzz got out of his packaging to join them in the penthouse, he accidentally unleashed Zerg, who appears atop the elevator to fight utility belt Buzz. And again, I just like the writing here, like the first time with the magnifying glass. The fact that Zerg was set up at the beginning in that video game sequence, I never pictured him getting loose and becoming his own nemesis in the film. And I love the fact that Rex, who was playing the video game, finally gets the kill. Like, that's, yes. it's not for either Buzz to win this fight. Well, you get the most obvious Star Wars reference first, though. <laughs> yeah, I am your father. But I love that when... Rex knocks him off. He's like, I beat Zerg. And whichever buzz it is there, I think it's a uh, utility belt buzz, just goes, father. Yeah, no, he's <laughs> the one that, to him, this is all real. This is not some toy storyline. He doesn't know what Star Wars is. He's not a toy. Yeah, as the rest of the toys are going to steal a Pizza Planet truck to get to the airport, Zerg and utility belt buzz are just playing ball, father and son reunited. Yeah, that was a cute way to write him out of the rest of the story, because you wouldn't want too much of two buzzes. Yeah, getting too buzzed is a bad thing. It is, certainly when you're driving. <laughs> and it's another car chase. Lots of callbacks here. I mean, Pizza Planet delivery truck, even the little aliens hanging off of the rearview mirror. Yeah, I remember these aliens being such a big deal in Toy Story. They have not been in this film up to this point. I'm like, when are they coming back? And that's how they write them back in. They're hanging from like the rearview mirror. And now we got not just one alien, you got three of them now. It was really by popular demand. The Bugs Life people were doing press junkets all over the world, and all they were seeing was not Buzz and Woody. It was those damn little green guys. And they said, we got to <laughs> figure out a way somehow. And this was the way they figured it out. Yeah, I loved seeing them again and use the power wand to talk about the gear shift to get the car going. For all the work it took to get the toys to the penthouse, though, getting back home seems pretty easy for them. Well, you don't want a big, long journey home. A lot of people didn't like that in Return of the King, which has a lot of ending stuff there after the climax. But this is the risk. Like now, 
okay, the toys, they got in cones and snuck across the street. I could go with the, now they're driving, but it's such a fun scene. Like, I actually don't mind it. I go with it. Yeah, they can't see when they're pushing the pedals and one's yelling out directions. It's totally reckless and cartoonish, but it's a lot of fun. They've been able to up their game with four years of additional technology. Yeah, I, I definitely are seeing more of like the big scale destruction of Incredibles in these little moments here. Again, that would have been another four or five year leap and just look at how much more craziness they could do on the streets than they can do here which is so much more than they could do the last chase i mean again they get better and better and i think we see maybe a genesis of monsters inc when they get to the airport and they go into this whole baggage claim if you see monsters inc there's this big chase scene with these doors that monsters use to go through to get to the real world it's just very cinematic and exciting and here i don't know you get all this luggage and all these belts going all over the place i got a vibe from that i'm like I wonder if this was how they came up with, you know, and really upped their game with Monsters, Inc. and that chase. Well, maybe they had to use that stuff. Because keep in mind, they only had eight months to fix this movie. They might have been stealing from whatever was lying around the other <laughs> movies. That was their next film. Yeah, maybe they already had some footage for that that they're working yeah, on. <laughs> they were already working on that film. They might have just said, hey, this has become our new airport. But it's a fitting end for Pete. He does get stuffed in a Barbie bag and is basically going to be painted over, touched, more than touched, molested, really, <laughs> by this aspiring artist, Amy. Yeah, that is a laugh-out moment for me. You, you get the Barbie and, like, Amy's such a great owner, and she turns her head, and she's like, two-faced. She's just, yeah, <laughs> all that marker. She's a great artist. That is a funny moment for me. It's certainly for someone that was so resistant to having the outside world touch him. Boy, yeah, it's going to be hell for him. But I do think there's hope. I do actually think if they ever got back to him, and who knows, maybe in Toy Story 4, I don't think we see him in 3, it may be that he's softened. I'd like to believe that anyway. But they still got to get Jessie. She has been loaded up on the plane, and Bullseye is going to ride them right up to the door as it's taking off. Yeah, it's an exciting scene of jumping out of the cargo hold, and I expected there to be more of the, you know, landing gear retracting and things, but it's just a matter of needing to fall out of there, and Buzz is down there trying to, I don't know if he's going to catch them, but he's going to assist. He caught his hat. <laughs> And the writers, directors, they all credited Joan Cusack for really helping this Jesse character. She was more passive. She was more of a damsel in distress during this scene. And Joan was like, no, she's a cowgirl. She's got to be more active and participate more in escaping this plane. And so, yeah, they changed things and incorporated that. Well, I like it. I like how she is an equal. And she is not Woody's love interest, as I would have expected. It, <laughs> yes. She is caught Buzz's eye. I guess Buzz has come around to the Old West. My wife could not believe this. <laughs> yeah, Buzz, his wings pop out. She's like, they just gave him a boner. I'm like, it's a metaphorical boner, but yes, she was shocked by that. Sure, why not? I, I like much about this epilogue. Obviously, they got to get back to the house, not through a chase, but just implied a shot out the window that they basically steal this luggage carrier, drive it all the way back to Andy's new home, and Andy gets back from camp and immediately runs to that shelf. He would not have rejected Woody. All of that fear was misplaced. And he's even more delighted to see that he has a cowboy horse and a cowgirl as well. He, he names her Bazooka Jane, actually. She's not called Jesse. He doesn't know about the history of the show. And he fixes Woody's arm. Now, now he's got bulging biceps, at least in one arm. 
Yeah, Woody got torn again. I love that. Like That stuffing is not even. He's got that big old muscle now. The only thing that didn't really work for me, I like Mrs. Potato Head adopting the aliens. I like the fact that Rex doesn't need to play the video game anymore. We got two Seinfeld people here, not just Wayne Knight, but the voice of... Mrs. Potato Head was George Costanza's mom. Yeah, I had to look that up. I'm like, I know that voice. How do I know that voice? Estelle Harris, how do I know that name? Oh, yes, it's George's mom who... (laughs) I'll never not think of the sponge bath master of my domain episode. (laughs) As someone that didn't watch Seinfeld, I'm blissfully unaware. She worked well for me as the loving partner for the kind of sour, cynical Mr. Potato Head. It's casting to type. I mean, she was married to George Costanza's cranky father who was prone to outbursts. So she's not stretching here. But the only twist for the characters that I didn't really like was Wheezy. Like, they shark just found him an extra squeaker. Yeah, they just found an extra squeaker in the toy box. And now he sings. I mean, I know that swing dancing and lounge singing was a big thing in 1999, but he's just going to do Friend and Me as some kind of big jazz number, Robert Goulet. Yeah, I couldn't believe Robert Goulet. I I was looking up (laughs) Estelle Harris, and I saw that Robert Goulet was the voice of Wheezy. And I'm like... He's really putting on a voice. Then I realized, no, he's just the singing voice of Wheezy. (laughs) But with all of this merriment, with all of the happy ending stuff, they're not going to leave you without the thought of what we've been through and the fact that some of this can't be resolved. Buzz and Woody are last seen looking out the window, watching Molly take her first steps, and it's a reminder that, yeah, the kids are going to age. Did he make a mistake? His conclusion is it's fun while it lasts. And in the end, at least I'll have Buzz. Yeah, they show, I love the little shot of Bullseye with his legs. There's a letter for Andy on each of the hoofs, and, you know, he mixes them up. It's telling me that, yeah, for now, they're safe, that Andy still loves them, that he's going to accept these new toys. And I don't know, maybe Molly, they'll get passed down to her. But they didn't paint over the inevitable pain. I mean, it's coming. We all know that there will be sadness, and I think we're going to see that. Oh, I know there will be, yes. We'll get to that next episode. I know nothing of which you speak. But for now, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Toy Story 2? Jacob. I do enjoy this one a little bit more than the original Toy Story. Part of it is it just looks better. The technology's better. They're able to just do more exciting things throughout it. The humor, the emotional death, all that stays, thankfully. Thank God that here's a sequel that understood what was special about the first one and was able to... Yeah, maybe they recreated a little bit. They do have some similar beats, but they're able to just look at different aspects of growing up, of just psychology, just human emotions and and what we go through, going through life, which it's amazing it keeps that up to the depths that it does as a sequel. Usually you, you might worry about that going away, but they don't here. And because it does look a bit better, the action scenes are a bit more dynamic. I laughed a bit more in this one. And yeah, those emotional depths and th- that anti-commercial slant that it gives like even me as a collector i you know there are certain collecting types they're just a little they're like al you want to stay away from them i've been to comic-con and been around those people so i enjoy this one a bit more than the original toy story so yeah that definitely makes it a recommend Stuart, i you know it could have easily been a straight to tape movie right disney might have been right this seems like a lazy cash in almost every plot point is just a reversal of what happened in toy story one only now it's happening to woody instead of buzz instead of a brat blowing up action figures you have a nerd objectifying the toys it seems lazy until you actually sit down and watch it 
And then when you have that experience and let it in, this is not a redo at all. This is an expansion. This is what you want in a sequel. They take everything that was there before and they deepen it by replaying the beats of Toy Story 1. The animation is more epic. We're all agreeing that it looks better. The emotions, more heartfelt. The existential themes, even more adult and yet still universal. What do you do when you become obsolete? I don't know anyone that's not going to face that. Honestly, I was bowled over the first time I saw it. I'm bowled over now. For me, this is Pixar at its best. Top three effort. I, I haven't seen them all. I should say that I'm not ranking all of Pixar. I haven't seen all of Pixar, but of the ones I've seen, Up, Ratatouille, and Toy Story 2, top shelf Pixar, in large part because they refuse, really, to shy away from the difficult stages of life. Cartoons always want to celebrate childhood, and this movie does too, but this one's going to give you aging, death, rejection, all that stuff that you don't want to think about, it's here. And yeah, they'll keep it funny, but all that cute stuff, it's there for you to enjoy in spite of how tragic Toy Story 2 really is. It works as comedy and as something darker. Not unlike Empire Strikes Back, it's the better installment in the trilogy. And yeah, I'm previewing my thoughts about part three. I like it, but this is as good as Toy Story's gonna get. Well, I haven't seen part three yet, but I can say that I definitely respect Toy Story 2 a lot more than Toy Story 1. I thought Toy Story 1 was a great technological achievement, but a lot of the story points I felt were kind of rote. I liked what it was, and I really enjoyed the callbacks to toys, but it didn't blow me away. This one, I knew we were going to get to some melancholic stuff with toys. I mean, I just, this is what I know about when I hear vague things about the sequels. I hear the third one's a bit of a tearjerker. But I think I heard that from you, Jacob. Yeah, I'll talk about it when we get there. This one was a tearjerker. I mean, I don't know how you don't choke up over Jesse. Yeah, this time I saw those depths that I couldn't appreciate originally when I saw this because I was begrudgingly taken to it. But I agree with you, Stuart. Like this one, I could see people crying during that number. Yeah, I didn't cry for that because... It was in the past, and then we, she had a happy ending. A sad ending would be worse and worth crying over. For this, I see that it's going to start really discussing truths about growing up, and like I said, the Corinthians, the leaving behind childish things. It makes me feel for the toys more than the first one did. I agree. It is a Godfather 2 scenario where it's, well, we all thought Godfather 1 was better, but... You can make the case, though, That's yes. the point. You can argue it's two really good films, and you can pick which one's better, and that rarely happens with the sequel. And this one had the bloopers I was looking for, although a little too many of them relied on flatulence. My favorite was the bug story one, where... <laughs> a part two we're never apparently going to get. Maybe Ants is the spiritual sequel. Remember that with Woody Allen? It looked awful. I never saw it. I've never seen it because it looks so bad. Oh, it's, it is. It's as bad as you expect. <laughs> I saw it. I saw B-movie. I've seen oh, so many. And yet I skipped the Toy Stories. Go figure. I'm skipping <laughs> yeah. the good ones. You make interesting choices, Arnie. Speaking of terrible... How is the Buzz Lightyear directive movie that Disney finally did get the next year? Yeah, they finally caught a cartoon series. It lasted 60, 65 episodes, about two seasons, something like that. But it was kicked off with a 70-minute feature, Buzz Lightyear of Star Command was the name of the series. And what's interesting is the beginning of this three episodes, I, I guess it's kind of a movie, is it starts with the computer animation. You you see all that and it, it's very meta. Like they got that plastic clamshell that Disney movies used to come in when they were on VHS and all the toys. They're like, wow, Buzz, you got a movie. Let's put it in and watch it. And then it goes to 
cell animation and not good movie-worthy cell animation, just standard TV cell animation. And it kind of reminded me of not that Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie, but it had that concept of the Green Lanterns where you had a bunch of space cops or space rangers, I guess, and Zerg's the major villain. And they got Tim Allen for this first feature to do the voice. And, you know, he's a loner. It's weird because I'm like, again, if you try to reconcile this with the Toy Story universe, I don't know how this works. But Buzz, he's just a regular space ranger. He's in full. I'm real. I'm not a toy. They're not bouncing off each other like toys, like in the films. This is just a space adventure. And he's a loner. And then he gets a group of space rangers that he's compatible with. They got those Martians, Arnie. So if you want more of those little green men, they're called LGMs. You get a lot of those little green men in this cartoon, but... I don't think I want them that bad. <laughs> Here's the thing. I watched it on YouTube because it's up there, and I'm like, let me read the comments. You never read the comments on the internet, people, but I'm like, I should read the comments to see if people actually like this because I'm like, this is for young children. This is not all ages. This does not have those emotional depths that we've been talking about. This is for kids. And all the comments were like, people, I love this cartoon. It's great that I could watch it again. I'm like, that made me feel old because this came out like in 2000 and people were talking about being four years old in 2000. So I felt old just watching it and reading through the comments. But if you got kids and they want more Toy Story, I watched a regular episode as well. Tim Allen does not stay for the whole series. They get Patrick Warburton, Putty from Seinfeld. So many Seinfeld people coming into this franchise. But he takes over as the voice of Buzz. But it's just like their adventure of the week. And yeah, there's a lot of Zerg that they're fighting. And it's for little kids it's not great yeah well i watched as much as i could stand i saw about 20 minutes of it that's an episode yeah well it was the movie version but yeah oh yeah i wish i only watched 20 minutes yeah what was good about it was this is exactly the kind of cartoon they would use to launch a toy franchise in the 80s like you know silver hawks and just all that (laughs) voltron whatever it is it's as good as that And that, to me, is not very good. It's not very stimulating to watch it. If you're not going to keep doing parody and winking asides and Simpsons adult-level humor, then I don't have any use for it, whether it's computer-animated or cell-drawn. Yeah, no, it is for small children. For sure. Good on you for watching the rest of it. But that was the only Toy Story anyone was going to get for a really long time. It would take another decade, really, before we would see Toy Story come again. Every time they make a Toy Story film, I feel like that's the last one. Uh, They did the first one, and I'm like, well, they're going to go do other stuff. Then they did part two, and I'm like, okay, a duology, and I never thought they'd do part three. Part three came out, and I was like, okay, a trilogy, we're done. Now part four, what more could they have to say about toys? Yeah, I always associate Pixar with kind of being sequel adverse until now. Now it feels like they did Finding Dory. We got three of those Cars films. Like, Toy Story felt special because there's a sequel. Now Incredibles got one. I don't know, Ratatouille. What's he doing fighting some (laughs) pest control guy? Let's find out, I guess. We'll see where Pixar goes, but that always feels like a step down when you have to rely on so many sequels. You can find out what I think about part fours when you listen to our show this Friday. Lethal Weapon 4 is out. (laughs) And so that will be our Friday show. And then next week, we are not doing Toy Story 3. We're taking a little breather because we're going to theaters this weekend for Dark Phoenix, which is probably the last of its kind in the X-Men universe. And maybe the New Mutants will find a way out someday. (laughs) Not this year. I hear they're doing reshoots with Ryan Reynolds. Sure. Deadpool going to show up? Yeah, that's what I'm reading. Or is Pikachu going to show up? 
so yes, next week, Dark Phoenix, then we come back with Toy Story 3, and then Toy Story 4, we'll talk about the schedule's a little wonky for that week. There's a lot of stuff coming out. Annabelle and Child's Play. Yeah, have you guys seen the crossover Child's Play posters with Toy Story, where he's roasting Slinky Dog Chucky is, and there's a Woody, you see like his arm and hat on the ground as Chucky's walking away? Like, Chucky is trolling Toy Story. Yeah, for some reason, the end of this month is all about toys we got toy story 4 annabelle and child's play all in the same week it should be fun so we hope you can join us for that and this friday for lethal weapon 4 ending our platinum donation series and then we got a couple of pickups there too we're gonna have men in black and yeah child's play coming on the donation series we hope you can support our show and get to hear all of these reviews Details are at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And thank you to everyone who's donated. Without your support, there's no way we could be doing the sheer number of reviews we do and keeping them at the runtime we have and the quality we strive for. So thank you to everyone. If you can't donate, head to Facebook or Twitter and thank someone who has because they're making this show possible. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, you've got a friend in us. You still worried? About Andy? Nah. It'll be fun while it lasts. I'm proud of you, cowboy. Besides, when it all ends, I'll have old Buzz Lightyear to keep me company. For infinity and beyond. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. I have been chosen. Farewell, my friends. I go on to a better place. If you enjoyed this show, you can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. If your kid loves you so much, why is he leaving? Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In the vacuum of space, they cannot hear you swear! In our archives section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. Wow, this place is amazing. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. Are you kidding? It's a commercial! A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday, so come back each week for another new show. And blast! I'm gonna get played with! Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. If you'd help us, one toy to another, I'd sure be grateful. You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at nowplayingpatron.com. You are going to help create happy memories that will last for the rest of her life. Uh Uh-huh. At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution. We all have to make sure nothing happens to him. We want to specially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more, 
Brent, AZ Kovacs, Brant Paddock, Nafe Williams, J. Clark Fisher, Logan2012, Neil Mulcahy, Roy Lake, T. Durden182, V.C. Neri, Wes Zimmerman2, Paul Blanchett, Len King Jr., Bowerman Entertainment, Cross CR, Fisher Jaw12, Jazer Watowski, Martin Hibbets, New York Giants Fan3342, Rudix, Andrew Doran, VMC Clentic, Now Playing Fan, Big Nico2047, Developer Adrian, Gojira76, Kiefer42, Moe, Price Jared24, Sphinctech, The Zabukazar, Adam Malowinski, Chris L. Harris, And Marup, D. Peters Versus, Brandante, James on Childress, Klein40, Mr. Osmus2, Robert Carter a USC, Ticasta2176, TNF73, We Are Tessellate, Anakin Flair. Uh, thank you, thank, thank you all, thank you. You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You have saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. You saved their lives. Oh, my hero. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. The ebook is available now, and the print book will be shipping soon. Find details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. Nirvana is coming. The mystic portal awaits. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. Uh, hi. Hello. Hi. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Everything's gonna be okay. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Good job, troops. We're that much closer to Woody. Now Playing is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. It's too short. We need more monkeys. There aren't any more. That's the whole barrel. Now Playing credits read by Brock. I don't believe that man's ever been to medical school. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You are a I don't care bear. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. I have a question. Well, actually, not just one. I have all of them. I have all the questions. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Authority should derive from the consent of the governed, not from the threat of force. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. Shoots and ladders. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. So long, partner. Kaboom. He's actually from another Pixar short, Gerald's Game, which played before Bugs Life. The Stephen King movie? No. About the S&M guy? Let me make sure it's called Gerald's Game. <laughs> yeah, be sure of that. It, it is Gerald. It's Gerald something. <laughs> I mean, they had The Shining in the in the first one, so I wouldn't be surprised. It begs a bizarre comparison. Yeah, you say Gerald's yeah. Game, I think of one thing. Ger- oh, Jerry's Game, they call it. Okay, okay. I'll re- read yeah. that.
that Woody meeting Woody, this is a direct reference to the enemy within with Spock versus bad Spock in Star Trek. I think the enemy with, within was Kirk versus Kirk. It was Kirk, Kirk. versus oh, Kirk. Oh, okay. Yeah. With, <laughs> I would, I I'd never seen in, it. Yeah, that was, with, that was yeah. what I remember as well. I'm like, evil Spock was mirror, mirror. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sweet mother of Abraham Lincoln, it's the chicken man. Jacob. <laughs> Don't be talking to me about Abraham Lincoln. We just got a 31-foot statue of Abraham Lincoln dropped in our town. Thanks. Scary. Scary. And there's a dude in a sweater vest. It's like Steve Carell from the 40-year-old virgin standing next to a 31-foot Lincoln. Freaky as hell. I mean, the, the, the guy standing next to him is wearing sneakers. Why is a guy... It's supposed to be modern man meets Lincoln. And modern man's holding the Gettysburg Address, but the Gettysburg Address is withered and old, and Lincoln looks young. What the f*** is this nightmare? I didn't realize I was going to trigger you with that opening. <laughs> I... I don't even have any. I haven't even seen it yet. Oh, my God. They closed down Madison. I heard. heard. Oh, it's a nightmare. It's it's truthfully, it's it's nightmare inducing Lincoln. Lincoln's a scary looking. He had like this disease. (laughs) You know, he was like tiny. The show's gone off the rails so quick. A thousand corpses. (laughs) Okay. His wife was nuts, too. Mary Todd. Really? We're going to gossip about. Insane Mary Todd. Like, no, he is supposedly a homosexual too. Yeah, like, let's go there. All the yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Lincoln Cast. You hit a trigger <laughs> with the Lincoln. Mm. I had no idea we were going to go there. 